0: It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blends All, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing. Welcome to Industry Seating. Sunday, mid-morning, I guess. Just went for a run, and it is unbelievably nice outside here in Boise. Uh, finally getting into uh, kind of the weather that makes this place so great and why I fell in love with it eight years ago, coming up on seven and a half. But um, yeah, it's obviously crazy times, and you know I'm out running on the sidewalks, and you see people bicycling with masks on and every possible variation of uh, people trying to protect themselves. You know, some are just acting normally and social distancing. Um, but yeah, just beautiful day here. And, uh, you know, more importantly, I think we have a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And maybe it's a little bit too early to say that, you know, there's so much happening every day right now. States are beginning to reopen. Whether that's smart or not, I can't answer. I'm not ai am not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not any of those things. So I'm just uh, watching as we go. But, you know, as we saw Georgia and some of these other states, South Carolina, Tennessee, they're all taking steps to reopen in the coming days, while other states like Pennsylvania and Hawaii and New York and New Jersey, they're all pushing that back substantially because they are dealing with some pretty heavy issues in their state. So again, I don't know what's right or wrong. I would assume that states like Georgia are, you know, they're responding to an economic crisis that they feel like, you know, the the virus is almost less damaging than what can happen to the economy if we stay closed. And, and again, that's not me speaking, that's what I perceive out there uh, every state seems like they're having to weigh both of those at the moment and make the most strategic and logical decisions they can. Now, where that comes down, where, where that line falls, I don't know, right? I, I don't know what the correct balance of health and science versus economic ramifications comes because if I, I think that's a very unique perspective for many people. I... I fall more into the side of economics, and I'll tell you why. I just don't know how we all don't catch this disease. And I know that sounds crazy, but if you really stop and think about it, okay, what's the plan here? We're going to start to reopen our businesses, start to reopen travel, and these are not staggered, right? We're in phases, but within a month or two, it sounds like June, July, we're going to be in somewhat of a normal again. And maybe that's not exactly normal. We don't, we won't have as many crowded places and there are going to be social distancing practices in place, but it's going to look much more normal than it does today sitting here on April 26th. So having that in mind and this, this disease, you know, or this virus being so contagious as we know it is, it sounds like we're all going to get it. I I don't know how that's avoidable. Um, if people are coming into to close contact with each other again, right? We're going to be touching surfaces. There's just no way to to completely sanitize this virus away enough to where people aren't going to touch door handles and just everyday life type stuff. But how do we not get it, right? We're, we're a year away from the vaccine, so we can't possibly quarantine for another year. You know, if we did that when we tried to restart from that point, it would be like reverting to the dark ages. I mean, every business would be completely shuttered. Um, I mean, just even the most basic business functions, I don't know that they would be able to maintain, you know, um, their status, right. Or just keep everything going as a functioning society. So when you take all those into account, we're not going to have a vaccine for a year. So you can't prevent spread other than the practices that we're doing, which I'm sure are effective. Uh, quarantining is effective, but we can't continue to do that forever. Social distancing seems to be effective, but that's going to become less and less viable as things start to ramp back up to normalcy. So I guess flattening the curve, which you've heard you know a million times in the last month, really is just about not everyone catching it at the same time. That, that's really all I can point to. Is that that's the goal, right? It's almost like the smartest people have determined that, you know, 50, 60, 70% of the world is going to catch this at some point, but we've got to spread that out across the next year. So not everyone is overwhelming the hospitals at the same time. That's really all. The only conclusion I've come to is that they've made that deduction that we're all going to get this because it's almost impossible not to, if, if we want to resume some sort of normalcy. Now, I know Sweden was the first to kind of come to grips with that, and they, they seemingly have made the push to sequester the vulnerable and the elderly to try to keep them as isolated as possible, right? They know that their chances of death are significantly higher, and that's what we want to avoid at all costs. But it seems as if they've come to the realization that everyone else, yeah, sorry, you're probably going to get this. And they're leaning towards the herd immunity philosophy where those that can withstand this virus will get through it and they'll build up immunity and long-term will be much better much better off for it. I think that's what's happening in America right now or globally even without them coming out and just saying it. And I don't know if we're ever going to come to a place where that is said, but that's, that's truly what I believe, that scientists and you know the the people that are really at the forefront of this have determined that without a vaccine in the last in the next year we're probably all going to get it but i don't think they want to come out and tell everybody that because just of the fear factor everybody would freak out and say so you're telling me that i'm going to get this no matter what i think that's what they're scared of is is people freaking out um, but they're also trying to slow down that spread flatten the curve as we said so people get it in staggered phases over the next year. Now, again, I could be completely wrong, but I, you know, we've all had more free time than we've probably ever had. Uh, no racing, no sports, no nothing, you know, forget about normal job, which I'm thankfully still doing, but just free time before and after working on the weekends, I have more than I've ever had. And I've tried been trying to think about every step of this on levels much higher than I, you know, I, I, really should be things that are way out of my league, you know, big picture, but then also things that are very much in my scope as far as racing and business aspects for fly racing and all the things that I I do touch on a daily basis. And I do have a very strong influence or, uh, that do affect me directly. And that's really the, I guess the conclusion I've come to on that end is that if we are going to get this and we're all going to get it, You know, fortunately for me, I I don't have underlying issues to where I'm a high risk candidate for having complications. Uh, My parents certainly do. My parents are both in their 60s. So I worry about them, but, you know, hopefully they can remain isolated, which they have been, and, and they don't catch this before there's a vaccine. But I guess when it comes down to it, if I'm likely to get this anyway, right, and I live a very high risk, lifestyle for this virus, right? I travel constantly and who knows if I already have it, I I could be asymptomatic. I could have already been through this. Uh, I've had a cold, you know, I had a cold in March. I didn't get any of the body ache issues, but who knows if I've had it or do have it. And I just am healthy enough where I'm not showing symptoms. You know, I, I can't speak to that, but if that's the case and I'm going to get it or I have had it, I think I would rather just try to resume my normal life. And that's my own unique decision that I have to make. And trust me, the last thing I want to do is, is spread this to anyone else. So that's not what I'm saying at all, but I'm saying if I don't have it now, but the likelihood of me getting it because of my, my work practices and the lifestyle I lead, if I'm going to get it anyway, then I might as well just go ahead and get it over with, I guess. And and that's a very, Cavalier attitude, I understand. Right. And, and I don't want this to come across as the wrong, the wrong way. I'm just saying that if it's going to happen anyway, then let's do it. Right. And, and I'll, I'll travel and I'll go to the races and hopefully those people that have to do the same thing, we all stay safe as safely as possible. But if it's, um, if it's just inevitable anyway, right. I don't really want to spend my days locked inside my house, hiding out and not living my life to the practical most full, right? There's always, there's going to be a new normal now, but I'd rather do that and get back out there and do what's as much as safely possible than I would hide out if I'm going to catch this anyway. So kind of veering off there, but that's just what my own unique perspective has been And logically, I don't understand how that's not going to be reality, especially as states open up, travel is going to start resuming in June and July. People are going to be getting on planes, uh, racing, which we're going to get into is going to start again, hopefully in May or June, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. That's going to expose more people. And I'm going to, if that's going on, then I'll hopefully be right in the midst of all that and I, I'm just going to have to accept the fact that I'm going to be more susceptible to it or more exposed to it. And I guess if I'm going to, like I said, you know, I've been kind of going the same point for the last five minutes, but if I'm going to get it anyway, then I'd rather just do the things that I love doing and, and go ahead and face that reality. than I would hiding out or being quarantined for the next five months and then, somehow catching it anyway because i've had to resume somewhat of a normal life right you have to go you're going to have to start going back to work you're going to have to start exposing yourself to new people in stores and all these places just to just to have some sort of a life even if i'm not traveling and going to the races if i'm going to catch it one of those ways anyway then let's just do it let's just get it over with let's suffer through whatever comes let's develop immunity if that's the case right we don't we don't know exactly how those antibodies will work and how the immunity will work but I guess I'm just, my fear level is kind of coming down, whether that's right or wrong or smart or stupid. That's what I'm feeling is my fear level is coming down and I'm valuing getting back to normalcy and facing this thing head on as long as we can take the the precautions to protect those that are very susceptible to complications. So how does that get enacted? I don't know. Uh, I don't know how we can keep those that are... Very vulnerable, safe, right? I think if you are elderly or you know you have underlying health issues, you're going to have to continue to quarantine. You're going to have to continue to be careful, and that's tough, right? I, I don't, I shouldn't be the one determining that. I shouldn't be the one telling people that they have to stay away from their normal lifestyle and, and hide out. But I, I don't, I don't know the alternative, and we're all going to learn together, right? I, I'm uneducated. I don't have any medical training. Again, I'm just like all of you. I just love racing dirt bikes and being around this sport, um, but we all have a brain. And we all have common sense, and we all have life experience, so um, I think it's, it's wise for all of us to walk through this, so we do make the best communal decisions for everybody. So Anyway, enough about that, a little diatribe. I didn't even plan on doing that at the beginning of this podcast, but there you go. Uh, I want to do want to thank the sponsors as we get going here. Uh, they have been so loyal to me, and I really appreciate it. Uh, Pirelli Tires, listen, if you have the ability and you feel it's safe, go riding. I've talked to a lot of medical professionals, and, and honestly, most hospitals around the country, if you're not in a coronavirus hotspot, are pretty empty. They're actually furloughing empo- uh, hospital employees in a lot of places because they don't have enough business right now. Um, and you, you can argue with that, but that's, that's a fact here in Boise, they're furloughing, uh, nurses and employees because the hospitals are pretty empty. Um, so that was, you know, that was a big thing with going riding early was they didn't want to overwhelm hospitals with, uh, people that were hurting themselves riding. Well, I don't think we're in that scenario. I think that has passed or if it, if it was at all. So my advice, get out there and ride your dirt bike. Uh, I, I've been doing a little research on Pirelli. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but they started in 1872 making tires. And obviously, we've gone through a little <laughs> a little bit of a development curve since 1872. But my point is this company has been in this business of building car and motorcycle tires for a very long time. Uh, I was reading through all of the business aspects they've gone through. They kind of um, diversified a little bit and stepped out in some other avenues. In the last few years, they've really... Uh, they've recommitted themselves to the tire business and all of their focus is back into tires. Um, and it's just, it's not really all that relevant to your purchasing decision, but it's just something I, I want all of you that are listening, whether you like it or not, to learn a little bit about these sponsors, because listen, that's why they're sponsoring this podcast. These are great companies. These are ones that I've, I've been sponsored by everybody that I work with here at some point. Uh, so I just want to share their message, and Pirelli is a long-standing company that is fully committed to, uh, to motorcycle tires, so check them out. Blenzol, I am wearing my Blenzol t-shirt. David sent me a shirt this week. I'm pretty pumped on it, so if you want to go check that out, if you buy a case of oil on Blenzol.com, you will get a free t-shirt. The promo code is FreeT when you check out. I actually got an email this week. Pretty cool. Gentleman got his... Uh, his 460 to run in his two-stroke this week. His blend's all 460. So um look interested to see how that runs for him. But that's probably been one of the biggest uh resurgences that I've seen from Moto of this whole coronavirus is people getting on their two-strokes and getting out riding bikes that maybe were just dilapidated in their garage or just a project that they didn't have time to do before that's what i've seen. Uh, i literally and, and i live in a kind of a hot spot for riding. everyone around here in this idaho colorado kind of region is into dirt bikes and and mountain biking and all those outdoor activities. so it's it's great here. but literally i cannot go anywhere whether i'm walking, riding my bicycle, riding my motorcycle, driving to work, whatever without seeing motorcycles in the back of a truck or a trailer with motocross stickers. hell, even my excuse my language, even my next door neighbor has a competing gear brand sticker on his Jeep. And I have uh, politely threatened to peel that sticker off his Jeep. And we'll see how that goes. But point being, moto is everywhere. Off-road riding is everywhere. And if you're going to do it, if you're going to go riding, check out our sponsors, blends all being one of those. Plum Creek Funding, obviously a little bit different, right? This is a a mortgage uh, and refinance company, but my buddy, Zach Morris is over there. He's based in Colorado, but they have uh, the ability to refinance and help you in many States. And they're expanding every day. Just talked to him the other day and he had walked up a few loans at 3.25% for refinance. And if you're purchasing a new home, so some of you have more questions than answers. You're looking at your mortgage every month and you're like, that's, Pretty expensive. I highly doubt that you have a, a mortgage rate that's three point two five percent or anywhere near it. I know I don't. I'm at four, but I just refinanced recently, so at his advice, he told me to, to kind of wait this out so I didn't have to go through closing costs and that again. But for many of you, you're looking, you've had your home for a decade. This is a great opportunity to take take advantage of the Federal Reserve dropping the interest rate. So just give him a call. That's what I would suggest more than anything else is to just call him and say, hey, this is my deal. This is my house. I'm looking at buying, whatever the case may be, and ask him what's his advice, right? He knows infinitely more than we do about this whole dynamic as far as how it affects that the housing market and interest rates and all that stuff. So his number is 720-212-4685. And again, his name is Zach Morris, like say by the bell, which I love teasing him about. But if you any of you remember Say by the Bell from my youth anyway? Zach Morris was the main character, and that's also Plum Creek Funding Zach's name too. Anyway, Works Connection. Another one of our great moto sponsors. They've been around for years and years. They sponsor all the big teams, and I was on their website and Instagram this morning just trying to learn more. Uh, Eric over there has asked me to continue telling people about the Pro Launch Start device, so I will mention that again. Uh, if you do race at all, and you want to get hole shots, that's a good way to start. Get the pro launch start device. Listen, you pretty much can't get a good start on a dirt start without a starting device. It's, it's impossible. I've tried it. Can't do it. Concrete start. Eh, there's, there's differing, uh, thought processes on those. I I know people that like them and don't like them, but on a dirt start, you have no chance without a start device. And then another item I saw in there was an hour meter. It got me thinking for all these people, that are out riding during this coronavirus, I think it would be pretty cool if you just kept track of how many hours you've ridden, right? And, and I probably should have started this a month ago, but I'd love to hear from people like, hey, this all went on, I was furloughed, I had more time to ride, whatever the case is, but I, I logged X amount of hours during the coronavirus pandemic. That's a pretty cool little uh, thought process that we could all compare and because I do believe that simply the volume of riding has gone through the roof. Right. And and there are multiple, uh, reasons for that. You know, the weather's turning for the whole Northern part of the country, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. So people are just dying to get out and ride and it's finally perfect weather to do that in a lot of areas. So that, that helps, but also people just, whether they don't go have to go to work or they have, you know, maybe reduced hours, they're riding more. So please reach out if you do have, or you do go out and get that worst connection hour meter let me know. Let me know how how many hours you've logged on it. Premier Vapor Blasting, another great sponsor of this podcast. They are the safest restoration method in moto. It does not compromise the integrity like a lot of the traditional methods out there do. So if you have an older bike, if you have old gear, old parts or anything like that, that you just, man, that doesn't, that looks pretty hammered. Send it to Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia. Let those guys get you dialed in. Honestly, the best proof I can tell you for What they can do is go on their Instagram, check out the things that they, the proof is right there and it blows me away. I saw another post this week and and I've told you guys this multiple times, but I don't have to explain it to you. If you go on their Instagram, you'll see exactly what they're doing and it's, it it really is impressive the turnaround that they can, they can do for these older bikes and parts or even a newer bike, right? If you have just been, you've ridden it a lot and it's got some time and it looks worn, send your parts off. They will get you dialed. The last sponsor is fly racing. And as many of you know, I work there and, you know, I'm heavily involved every single day in the things that go on there. I've been managing the social media. Just add that to the list of things that we've been doing or I've been doing over there and uh, just trying to get more engagement, more involvement in these times where people are paying attention. So that's been fun. Um, Keeps me busy, right? Checking all these posts and trying to comment on people's pages. Uh, Brendan Schaub is a big UFC, uh, influencer. He has his own podcast and video blog and all these things. He's been wearing fly racing in his mountain bike adventures, which I just reached out to him. I got a tip that, Hey, he, he might be in the market for some stuff reached out and he has been overwhelmingly awesome as far as posting stuff. And I actually just built a, another order to send him today because I I love to get outside the sport influences wearing our stuff, right? That's that's how we can cross over and become more of a mainstream brand and really just share what we're trying to do. I truly believe that fly racing has, if not the best, then right there with the best overall product lineup in the world, period, bar none. And that's not to say there aren't some really great competitors out there too. I want to be fair. Uh, but I, I believe in what we're doing. I believe in the people behind what we're doing more importantly. And I think our future is incredibly bright. Even in a very uncertain business, you know, horizon, I believe in what we're doing. And I believe that the, the loyal customers that we have and the people that believe in fly racing are going to be here to stay. That, that's just what I believe. So right or wrong, I could be foolhardy in that, um, but I'm passionate about it. And, and I appreciate every single one of you that gives fly racing a chance. Uh, I want to just remind quickly about the, the Instagram giveaway. Check out our Instagram videos to find out how to qualify for free items. And and I've been hands-on in that project, free items we're sending out. If you buy something from your local dealer or online retailer, and then again, everything is 10% off for the month of April. So you can check that out from your favorite place to purchase as well. All right. Thanks for listening to the sponsors. You know what? It's funny because People, you know, fast forward through the sponsors on podcasts. I get it, right? I, I've been guilty of it in the past, but I've really been trying to not do that. I listen to a lot of financial podcasts and a lot of current events things just to become more informed and and smarter. Really, when it comes down to it, and I've been making a habit of listening to the sponsors. I, I won't fast forward anymore because as a podcaster now, I understand there are people that are supporting. Me and supporting this podcast in hopes that you'll listen and you will support their business in the end, right? So, how how much of a hypocrite would I be if I just fast forward through those commercials that of the podcast that I enjoy? So I, I've really been trying to do a better job of that, and I've learned I, I listen to the message that the sponsors are sharing. Uh, they're not advertising to waste their time, right? They have something they want to share with you, and usually a, a good deal or a discount or just a positive message or a really cool item that they want to tell you about. So anyway, just something I've really been trying to do on my own end, but let's talk about, uh, let's talk about moto a little bit. How is this all going? What is, what's the latest news? Right. And it's kind of been every day is a little different. Um, you know, Steve Mathis and I did a a pretty cool podcast the other day on what's the latest. We did a Instagram live on Thursday I thought that really shared some cool info, the latest gossip on where the series was headed. So if you didn't listen to any of that, there is a plan in place right now to start racing on May 17th. And that's a Sunday And the first round. Oh, actually all the rounds would be in Glendale, Arizona at State Farm Stadium, exactly where we raced in January, right? So if you remember round four, we had a triple crown in Glendale. We would run all the final seven rounds in Glendale within three weeks. That's the tentative plan that's on the table. Now they're moving heaven and earth, working with the, with the government, the the governor of Arizona to try to make this happen, right? There are so many stipulations in the contract that they would sign that have to go perfectly. And I've heard this is an ever growing list and becoming more and more difficult. They are optimistic that it's going to happen though. So just to give you an idea of the the confidence there, all of the riders that I've talked to are back riding Supercross. Osborne and Webb and these guys are back motoing Supercross again, which they would not be doing if they didn't think it was going to happen, right? That's, That's a big effort to completely shift your efforts back to Supercross away from motocross again. And start, you know, there was a lot of bike work that had to be done, a lot of shipping back and forth from California to Florida. There's just a lot of steps in that process. So that speaks to the confidence that they have this is going to happen. Now, I've heard a lot of negative feedback so far from uh, just outside voices saying that it's irresponsible for supercross to start on may 17th that the nation is nowhere near ready and we're going to spread the spread this thing more and yada, yada a lot of a lot of that right and i'm not saying that's wrong i'm just saying that i don't think that's going to matter in the end right they're felled and the government in arizona is going to make the best decision that they feel they can responsibly economically health-wise, they're weighing all of these things. It's not going to be up to you and me and our opinion. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. That's fine. But when you don't have all the data, when you're not an epidemiologist, when you're not on the ground in Arizona, you're you maybe not qualified to make condemnations like that, nor am I. I'd be the first to say it. I'm not. And, and But I would not do that either. I wouldn't tell someone it's irresponsible to make a decision. When I'm not the foremost expert on it. We'll see how this goes, right? It's going to be an interesting week. The latest I've heard is that Wednesday of this week, which would be, was that May 1st? Something like that is the go or no go. That's what I've heard. They have to make a hard decision on Wednesday. Now that's all well and good, but my question would be, at any time past that, couldn't the governor of Arizona step in and say, yeah, sorry, you're not doing this, right? So it's, it's hard for me to accept that Wednesday is the final yay or nay when the president or the government could step in and say, yeah, sorry, you're not doing that. I'm guessing that Feld is basically saying, as far as we're concerned, Wednesday as a yes or no. We're going to push forward all in on Wednesday or we're out on Wednesday. That's all I can really draw from that. So we'll see what happens. Um, my, my other question on that is with Arizona's cases spiking, what does that mean to this whole deal? Because as we know, many of these phases have been hinging on a downward trend in, you know, this outbreak. So that's going to be a day by day thing to watch. And, I know the government in, uh, Arizona, the governor of Arizona has been really aggressive in trying to get back to normal. So I think he welcomes this being in their state and, and whatever potential, you know, business boon that that could bring to them. Uh, but again, as I sit here today on Sunday there, it is spiking in Arizona. So that could have some sort of negative effect, right? It could push the days back. It could stop it entirely. I don't know. I know it can't be good, I would suspect that they're, you know, as they're testing more and more people, right? Testing is becoming more common, that it's correlated to that. You know, I don't think that it's just spreading everywhere all of a sudden. I think it's just more people are being tested daily. And then there's a correlation to the number of people because of the testing. You know, that's an uninformed opinion, but it is my opinion. Another aspect of this is NASCAR announced that they're going to go racing on Sunday, May 17th, also. So those of you that are freaking out about moto being first and, you know, irresponsible, you can get mad at NASCAR too, because they're going to go racing on May 17th. That's the plan, which I think will take a little bit of the, the pressure off of moto as being the only ones that are kind of stepping out on their own. Uh, I think it's a positive, right? The more that it's Everyone, had, you know, going together hand in hand to, to restart some of these things as safely as possible. We're not going to look like the outlier that disregards health. Um, I think that's just an overwhelmingly positive thing that NASCAR has decided to do it too. I would assume their, uh, mission would be the same, right? No fans separate everyone, stay as safe as possible, check temperatures, do all the things that are in the list of mandatory procedures to go racing. But hey, I'll like I said, I'll take anything real racing over the digital gaming racing that's been going on. I, I which I I just can't get into. Uh, but yeah, really positive step in that direction. Now, many of you probably saw the post from Cooper Webb this week, uh, and that was in response to a certain team or rider pushing back on the schedule. And it's not my place to say who the team was, because I honestly don't know who exactly it was or why, but he clearly wasn't happy about it and took the stance of, Hey, we all need to get back to this and get it done. I don't think he was happy with teams saying that they couldn't be ready in a month, uh, which I, I would tend to agree with. If a team came out and said, Hey, this isn't safe health wise. And we feel we're unnecessarily putting ourselves at risk. That's a tougher conversation to have because anyone that is going to point a finger and say, Hey, you know, you're making a bad decision for yourself. That's a really dangerous place to be. But if, if you're claiming that you don't have enough time to be ready, I'm going to have to take a little bit of a different approach and just, and disagree on that. So you saw the immediate response or seeming response from Ken Roxon, which neither of them called each other out. So we have to speculate that one was in response to the other, but you saw Kenny posting about Arizona spiking and that we needed to be patient and not rush into anything. So it's hard not to draw lines and correlations between all those things, right? You hear that one team isn't ready to go back or had, you know, put their hand up as hesitant, then you see Cooper Webb come out with a post. Then you see Ken Roxon seemingly respond to that post. It's hard not to think they're all related. And again, I'm not saying they are because I don't know. I haven't talked to either of those two. They haven't come out and said that they're specifically addressing each other. But again, we probably can assume they are. You know, I'm this whole journalism bit that, you know, we pretend to do in Moto. You have to be able to draw assumptions, and I'm going to assume that they're all talking to each other without specifically talking to each other. So yeah, where does that all land, right? Is if they decide to go racing this coming Wednesday, do those that are hesitant just say, hey, we got to deal with it. We just got to suck it up, and hopefully we stay healthy, but they're going to go racing, and we have to be there. I think that's probably where this lands. If you're the series, you have to just take a – and approach above all that and say, listen, this is going to be the race date. These are the times we hope you're there. You know, <laughs> like what else can you really do? You know, you have to rise above all the fray. Cause there's always going to be dissension. You're never going to get a unanimous green light on decisions, right? Think about, and this is apples to oranges. I get it. You're dealing with some health stuff, but you're never going to get a hundred percent unanimous agreement on stuff like triple crowns or schedule expansion or any of that stuff right Uh, east west stuff you're never going to get people that are all thinking the same way and they all agree never going to happen so you have to make the best decisions you can take all the information on hand into account and make smart decisions and that's where i think they'll end up doing in the end so we'll see again huge week coming up as far as the uh the future of this series anyway Uh, Another thing I wanted to mention here was the financial ramifications of not going racing. Okay. So private teams out there and the OEMs are a little different. If you're a factory team, you're not for profit, right? Okay. The mechanics, the technicians, the riders, they are, and they're dependent on going racing to make money. So they're also lumped into this too. But if you're a private team and your business is securing sponsorship, you need to go racing to get paid. A lot of the sponsors, whether they can or, you know, they can continue to pay or they can't, a lot of them have furloughed sponsorship money because there is no racing. And they're, again, they're also protecting their financial future, right? They're hunkering down to make sure that they can withstand the storm. And a lot of the companies have, I don't want to say thrived because that's not really the correct approach, but They've been doing better than they thought they would because everyone's been out riding. But I do know a lot of these teams and riders, they're really struggling because you know sponsors are basically saying, hey, we can't pay right now, or it's, it's not financially responsible to pay right now, especially when there's no racing going on for the foreseeable future. So a lot of these teams are basically pleading to go back to racing so they can resume their normal pay structure with their sponsors. And that's that's for the good of the sport to keep teams and riders and everybody employed. All these things are tied in together, right? Your average weekend warrior going riding or going trail riding, or just buying a bike and riding in his yard. They go out and support companies like fly racing, like works connection on and on blends all they spend money with those brands. Then those brands in turn go sponsor riders and teams that get exposure to all of those customers, right? So they're going to go sponsor, all of these private teams, whether it's, you know, Rocky Mountain KTM, which I'm affiliated with, uh, just, you know, take your pick, uh, you know, Bullfrog Boss, Smart Top Concepts, Moto, you know, uh, Moto Concepts, Honda, same thing. All of those teams, JGR, just go down the line of any team that's not owned by a full factory team. You know, like the, uh, Bobby Hewitt owns the Rockstar Hus- Husqvarna team, a team like that, you know, th- all those teams need money even if they're factory affiliated and they get help, they need money to go racing and they need money to stay in business and keep their employees paid, right? They have bills too, but all those things are contingent upon going racing and fulfilling contracts. So that's a really big thing. The sooner we can go racing, the easier it is for these teams to stay in business without going way into debt or, you know, basically just furloughing employees. Another aspect of this was how does this all affect, you know, the MX sports side, because obviously they have a series that is supposed to start originally, right? It's supposed to start what May 20th or 21st, whatever the date was, um, to go racing at Hangtown. Well, that's obviously been canceled and a new schedule was put out a month or two ago. Right now they're scheduled to start June 13th, but I have a feeling that's going to get pushed and we're going to start June 20th. That's my feeling. And that's based on a few factors, Supercross, this new Supercross schedule being one of the, one of the big ones. But I also know that on June 20th at Mount Morris High Point National, it's on main NBC and just the network NBC channel. And they really want that race on TV. Everybody does. NBC wants it, you know, pro motocross wants it. Everybody involved wants that race to go off as scheduled. So I don't see them pushing past June 20th unless they absolutely have to. Unless the governor governor of Pennsylvania steps in and says, "Hey, you guys are not racing under any circumstances." I don't see how that race doesn't go off on June 20th. So we'll see how that ha- how that goes, but that's that's what I see happening is us starting the series on June 20th. Now, many of you if you have ever bought a ticket from MX Sports or anything like that, you probably got an email saying that they've suspended ticket sales for the outdoor nationals until further notice. Now on the surface, people are like, Oh no, that's bad news for the series. You know, they're not going to go racing. I don't agree with that. I think that they know that if they go racing, they're going to have restrictions on how many people they can have at the race. I think they're going to have to have several guidelines of, you know, people can't go to concession stands. You can't handle cash. You can't use pens to sign in your waiver. You can't do any of these things because they're they're scared of spreading the virus. So I think all these things are going to have to switch to digital, right? You're going to have to sign uh, Oh, some, and if you get any sort of pass, you're going to get to sign a waiver digitally, I think you're going to have a hard cap on how many people can attend the race, right? So that they need to restrict ticket sales to when they know that number. And then that's the hard cap. They're going to buy them online with credit card That's you know, it's obviously safer and and, uh, cleaner, and then they can sell that number. So I think that was just the first step leading towards some of those restrictions, right? They don't want to keep ticket sales open, sell a ton of tickets, then they have to refund, um, so if they get ahead of it, then they can really control how this whole process goes. That's my take of it. I don't know that for, for sure, but I am clued in a little bit to how these things are going. Um, and that's what I drew from it. So maybe we'll get some more clarity on that as we get closer. Um, again, I have another note here, which I already kind of covered, but the next two 72, 72 hours are critical, right? I, I talked to Zach Osborne this morning. He's back riding, but they're all, just waiting right They're They're back to normal training, but they know that this week could be make or break for a real decision. (laughs) Could you imagine if they get back into this week and then like Thursday they come out and announce, yeah, we tried, but we're going to revert back to the September, October plan. Like what a roller coaster that would be for everybody. The riders would then have to switch back to riding outdoors again from supercross, switch all the bikes over, switch all, everything would switch. And and that's not a huge deal, but it is, it is a, a nuisance, right? It's not anything that they want to do. Um, the teams have to forget all the plans for going back, going to Glendale Glendale for a few weeks. Uh, I don't expect that to happen. I think on Wednesday, they're going to say we're moving forward, but I think it's still tentative for that whole thing. Actually happening, right? Even if they come out Wednesday and they say we're going, there's going to be a hundred things that have to go perfectly right from paperwork to outbreak trends to the state cooperating with national government and the teams and just so many things, all these new policies and all these new uh, restrictions, the temperatures being checked and, and travel mandates and hard caps on people that can go in and out. There's just a lot of things that have Supercross has never had to deal with that are all going to have to get implemented in three weeks. That that sounds crazy to think it can happen, but I think you're going to see people moving quicker and foregoing a lot of red tape faster than you've ever seen. So I do think it will get approved on Wednesday. That's my gut feeling. Um, but I, I, still think we're a long way away from a gate dropping on, on Sunday, May 17th. I'm hopeful though. I want to see racing, but I want it to happen safely and I want the right steps to be taken so people don't just bash us for, for going racing. But again, I don't have any say in that, so we'll just see how it goes. Okay. Enough of the racing. We'll, uh, we'll have more news hopefully this week and, uh, I'll, I'll update this podcast as soon as that decision's made, whether it's Wednesday, Thursday, or what have you, that date was originally last Friday, and it got pushed out to Wednesday. So it wouldn't shock me to to see that date get pushed out again. Um, so we'll just play that by ear. The story I have for you um, this week, and I've been doing a little bit of story time every week, is on seriously, and and this isn't hyperbolic, but it's a, Sebastian Tortelli is one of the greatest human beings I've ever met, and. Any of you that have ever met him, you are probably just nodding your head in agreement because the guy, seriously, I don't know that he's ever willingly done anything malicious in his entire life. Like He just doesn't have any evil bone in his body, right? He always thinks of other people. And it's just I'm starting it off with saying how great of a person he is, and because that's what I always think of when I think of Seb, and that's his you know nickname short for Sebastian. but he is just that guy. and um, all of my memories thinking back to him are, are positive and warm because that's how he left everybody. He just was such a great person. So going back to the very beginning. Uh, My first memories of Sebastian are, I should say meeting him anyway, because my first memories of him was just hearing about this young kid racing the world championships. And I think he won, he won the 95, 125 world championship when he was like 16, 15, 16, 16, I think, which was just crazy, right? He's just this phenom. But I didn't really know a lot about him. And you got to remember, there's no internet back then. It was all magazines and just hearsay. But I do remember hearing something about this kid on the rise. And, you know, I, I'm sick. I'm what, 10 months younger than Sebastian? So he was a little bit older than me, less than a year. But to think where I was at 16 and to think where he was at 16 winning a world championship is just a world of difference, literally. But, didn't really hear a whole lot. And then you kind of hear about him racing the 250 world championships and he's battling with Everts and you're looking in these magazines from back then motocross action whatever you could get your hands on Motovert in uh France, another one. And then you hear that this guy's going to come over and race supercross. Okay. So my first time ever seeing him in person was his first supercross in America as well. And this is Los Angeles Supercross of 1998, first race of the year. And it was, like I said, my first time to California and it just poured down rain. And if you guys watch this race on TV, you'll remember how muddy it was. And Doug Henry leads the whole main event or a lot of it. And then Tortelli passes him with a lap to go and wins the main event. Just unbelievable race by Tortelli out of nowhere, just crazy, unbelievable, shocking result it was obviously muddy and that's why he won he had no business winning a supercross race a normal supercross race he would have never won at that time but racing in the mud he was he had way more practice than any american does because that's what they ride in all the time now i was racing that night also i actually whole shot the 250 lcq i didn't qualify it's the first race and and it was my first full year of racing a big bike also which i actually moved back down but I shouldn't have qualified. Even Tim Ferry didn't qualify that night, and he was the—he was just coming off a 125 Supercross championship. Uh, I think I got fourth or fifth in the LCQ, but I remember it was awesome leading the first lap and going up the Coliseum. You know, this was at the LA Coliseum and going through the peristyle. That was something I'd watched on TV, you know, as a kid, and to be able to do that, especially leading any sort of race, was pretty awesome. So it's just a memory I always have. But, yeah, I remember watching that race and be like, damn, this Tortelli guy just came over here and won. And, yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a false hope for his Supercross future. But, um, yeah, he went back, raced Europe that year. And then, really, the next time I saw him was 1999, Gwen Helen outdoor opener. And you want to talk about a guy coming in prepared? Go back and watch the 250 class at Glen Helen, 1999, he mops the floor with everybody, period. I mean, he was so much better. And I remember watching the motos. I watched both 250 motos and I seriously, like my eyes were like a cartoon watching how fast he was going around this track up and down the hills and carrying momentum. He was just on a different, completely different level. And I mean that in every sense of the word, especially that day. Uh, just killed everybody, and I'm like, this guy's gonna—he's gonna win the title like easily. And he—he he ended up dislocating his wrist that year uh, in a crash with Doug Henry. But he really blew my mind as far as how amazing he could really ride a dirt bike, and especially on a track like on Helen, which really brought out his specific skill set. So anyway, he's racing around, right? He races in '99, 2000. My first time really battling him was in 2000 we had an epic battle in the 250 main event at new Orleans and I passed him in the main event. And I was like freaking out that I passed him and like, <laughs> was like more worried about, I, I just passed factory Honda world champion, Sebastian Tortelli than I was my own thing and ended up making a mistake. And he passed me back, um, a few laps later, but yeah, he finished right in front of me and I was just blown away that I, I could, was able to actually do that if that would have been an outdoor race, I would have never even seen him. He was, he was that much better at motocross racing than supercross racing, which I would learn all too well in the coming years. But that really, you know, I raced them more in supercross. And then, so we, we move into the 01 season and I'm on, uh, Husqvarna factory Husqvarna as, uh, industry seating listeners would know. And there's this track in Ocala where I, you know, in Florida called hard rock. And I rode this track I still may have the most laps of any human alive there because I grew up riding there on sixties and eighties raced there all the time, practice all the time, all the way through my amateur career. And then as a pro, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to practice there whenever I wanted. So I rode there, you know, a couple days a week, three days a week, 30 minute motos by myself, just day after day after day, just thousands of laps by myself motoring down. So, go to one flash to one. And I'm out there, same thing. It's a, I don't know, a random Wednesday or whatever. And I'm going out there to do my motos on my factory Husky 250. and Tortelli's there. And I'm like, Oh snap. And and I'd heard he had moved to Florida, but I hadn't seen him and I didn't know him at all. So he's out there and and we're both out there riding. And, uh, we're probably about the same speed on that track because keep in mind I was, this was my track, right? I was stupid good there. Like I could beat Timmy there. Um, I don't know that I've ever just gotten straight up beaten there just in like a, you know, a practice mode or whatever. So I, I'm sure I got Tortelli's attention because I don't think he was used to people being able to go as fast as he w- was able to. And keep in mind, hard rocks, a really smooth track. And I knew every square inch of this track. I had every secret line you could find and all that stuff. So after the moto, I'd swung over to his truck. And I'm like, Hey man, you know, you know, welcome to Florida. And, um, it's awesome to have somebody out there, to, to ride with and whatever and you know, he's typical Sebastian, just as nice as can possibly be. And like like he didn't he knew that I raced. He'd obviously seen me racing against him. I'm sure he knew that I'd passed him at New Orleans a year earlier, which probably blew his mind. Um, but we didn't have any previous relationship at all. So um I was like, hey man, you know, it's anytime you ever want someone to ride with or anyone just I can't push you. You're a million times better than me, but tracks like this, I can at least keep you on your toes. And he's like, Oh, you'd be awesome. You know, I'm building a track in at my house, it's not ready yet. Um, but yeah, let's, let's ride together. That'd be great. I'm, I'm here by myself basically with my wife and, uh, my trainer and Mark Peters, who's building the track. So yeah, I'd love that. So anyway, we started riding together somewhat regularly, uh, in that 01 summer, which was awesome. And then he slowly started getting his track together which, uh, he invited me over and, um, got to ride there. And then the big thing was they were having a hell of a time getting his outdoor track built because it was, they were just clearing woods. Like I'm just talking like a wooded jungle that they were clearing to build this whole outdoor track. Well, the supercross area had all been cleared. So that was the big priority. The outdoors were winding down and let's get this supercross track built. So as, Sebastian and I started getting to know each other more and more, you know, we kind of built a plan like, Hey, let's, let's really hunker down in this off season for a one and let's train together and ride together and, you know, really build off each other. And it, it was mutually beneficial, right? He had no friends there. He had no one to hang out with, no one to train with, ride with all those things, except for his trainer. And for me, it was a crazy good opportunity to learn and ride and train with this world champion. And also, you know, he's letting me ride at his track and all this stuff. It was, is a awesome situation for both of us. So, uh, through that summer we start like, Hey, when's your flight? Let's, you know, whatever, let me know when your flight is and I'll jump on the flight, same flight in. And, and you just start be- to develop this friendship and, uh, <laughs> some just random weird stuff. I remember like, so I'm go back to then I'm 22, just turned 22. And, I remember getting on planes and it was always kind of the same thing, right? T-shirt, board shorts, sandals. And this is the summer in Florida and it's crazy hot, right? So I'm, yeah, okay. I'm making okay money on a factory team, whatever, traveling the world. But yeah, I'm a Florida kid in board shorts and sandals. And yeah, okay. I got to get upgraded into first class, which I can only imagine the eye rolls that people are giving me sitting like that in first class. But then you have this guy that I'm walking in with him and his wife And they're dressed to the nines to fly, right? That's the European in them. And they're, you know, very successful and they fly first class and they have like designer clothes on and scarves and sweaters and all this stuff. And I'm just like, I am so white trash compared to you guys, (laughs) but it was whatever. I'm just a kid, you know, I didn't really know any better or care, but I just remember that like sitting next to these guys and these people had to be looking like at him and then at me and then at his wife and then at me and then him. And it's just like, how do you guys even hang out? You have this French social elite couple. And then this hillbilly from Florida, you know, they're all friends, just funny looking back on. Um, and another thing that guy, I don't know why they almost missed every flight I could ever think of. I don't know why, but seriously, every time I would be on the plane board, no normal, get their normal time hour before. And he would be like the last possible second of getting on this plane. And remember this is before and after nine eleven. So certainly before nine eleven, there was like almost zero security. He would be to the last second. Like he would pull in and I'd be on the plane and they're like ready to close the door. And he'd be pulling into the parking lot in Gainesville airport and like running onto the plane. And I'm like, why don't you just move your schedule up 20 minutes earlier and then avoid all the stress? And you just like, ah, I don't want to waste any time. I'm just like, okay, man. Like it was unbelievable how close this guy would cut it. And it's kind of an irrelevant fact, but it's just what I remember going back to then is he would leave his house like an hour before the flight and he lived 35 minutes away. Just unreal, you know, and, and think about back then. And I guess factory guys are the same. Now he wouldn't take anything on the plane, right? He had, extra knee braces on the truck, extra everything, right? They, they didn't take, he didn't take anything other than just a carry-on with some clothes in it, like normal casual clothes. So he didn't need to check a gear bag. He didn't take any of that stuff. His gear company would bring all the stuff. He had extra, everything you could possibly ever think of from socks to knee braces to everything. And then his mechanic or truck driver or whatever would wash all that stuff for him that he reused during the week. So pretty cool. Very, um, convenient way to go racing for him. So go back to that off season and we're getting ready for supercross. Well, Mark Peters was building all that stuff and working on the track every day for him and Mark was staying out at Sebastian's property in the middle of nowhere. And if you guys don't know who Mark Peters is, his dad, Stu Peters is the, was the founder of like CMC golden state, one of the biggest, most successful series ever that was in California. Back in the '70s, '80s, 90, maybe '90s too, um, and his sister Sandra Peters worked for the industry forever too. So they're they're a staple of this this sport. And Mark Peters has built many of the test tracks in California. Suzuki Track used to work on the Honda Track. Did all these tracks right. He's he's a track builder extraordinaire. So Sebastian flew him out to Florida and was paying him to build these tracks, and it was very, very very expensive. That's all. I didn't hear numbers and I didn't ask and I didn't want to know, but I know just from the stress from all of them, it was getting extremely expensive to pull all this off. So anyway, um, Mark is just going crazy out in the middle of nowhere in Ocala. And, and I'm saying in the middle of nowhere, you'd have to see where this place is. It was in the middle of nowhere. So I told Mark, like, Hey man, you're living with a married couple. Why don't you come stay at my house? I'm single. I live by myself. It'll be awesome for me to have some company, It'll get you out of their hair, right? I'm sure you're going crazy being out here. You're, you can't separate yourself from work, come hang out. So he was like more than happy about it. And then obviously Sebastian and Stephanie were excited too, just to get him separated from their life too. So he came and lived with me for, I don't know, three months probably, and gave me somebody to hang out with. And we'd go eat together and all, you know, we're both moto people our whole life. So it was kindred spirits kind of thing. Um, but just, you'd have to know Mark. He's just a crazy character. Well, so our training program that Yana Curvella put into place, who was Sebastian's trainer at the time, this was how it went every day. And, and you want to talk about whipping ourselves into shape. We were lean, mean machines come January. So this started probably September Uh, every morning. Mark and I would drag ourselves out of bed and we would be at Sebastian's property by seven. And we took off running at seven. Like there was no, Hey, it's seven Oh three. We waited on you. Like you needed to be there and you needed to be ready to run at seven. And that was just discipline, right? It was, we needed to stay on schedule because that's what we're up against. You know, Ricky Carmichael and these guys, I know what they were doing and that's, it's very much up their alley. So we needed to have the same level of discipline. If Sebastian wanted any chance to beat Ricky. So 7 a.m. we'd start running and there was this trail that they had cut in all through the property and it was, we would run for 45 minutes. I think it was two laps around this property trail and it was like around 45 minutes and uh, Sebastian was super fit, right? So I would just be chasing him running the whole time. Um, but we, every morning, 45 minute run, come back from that, get something to eat, And I would bring my breakfast with me or whatever. Sometimes Stephanie would cook for us, whatever the deal was. They were crazy generous. So it was never a worry about that. Uh, And then we would start riding by 10 o'clock. So that gave us time to eat, chill a little bit. I would work on my bike and uh, Mark could work on the track. They would water it, all those things. But we'd ride at 10, do our motos, whatever Yannick had laid out for our plan and the biggest thing I remember about that was Janik was really big, more than I think most American trainers are. He's He was really big on technique. And if you think about European versus American, it makes sense, right? They're very in tune with flowing on the bike and uh, perfect technique and finding traction where it's difficult to and and body positioning and all these things that I'd really never – been around so much. It had never been a big part of my training. I was just like a hammerhead, right? Just moto, 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 and ride yourself into oblivion and get better that way, where this was a very Euro approach where they would work hard. Don't get me wrong. There was a lot of work being put in, but there was a very strong emphasis put on technique and body position and the science of going fast versus just riding so much that you go faster almost by accident. Right. So, um, it was really eye opening for me and Yannick was so cool with me. Um, he knew I was just trying to get by, right. I was trying to get better. And even if I was getting, I was getting 10th, 12th, 15th or whatever. He knew that I wasn't making millions of dollars like Sebastian was. And he knew that I really valued all the help they were giving me. Um, I can never say enough to guys like Tortelli and Chad Reed and Tim Ferry and all these guys who took me under their wing at certain times, how much that all helped me. So, uh, again, Yannick was just great with me when Sebastian would be in California testing or whatever. Yannick and I would just go riding and bicycling by ourselves. Right. And I would tell Yannick, "Hey, man, I can't afford to pay you. I'm not asking for you to do anything. Just, I just going to do whatever you tell me to do, whatever you tell Sebastian to do, I'm going to be here listening. And I'm going to do that too. I don't care if you tell me I have to run 10 miles today, I'll do it. And I think Yannick respected that because I didn't whine. I didn't complain if, you know, and I was working on my own bike with my dad's help, but I would be there every single day. Anytime you told me anything I had to do, I was willing to do it because I knew I was so lucky to get this kind of insight and perspective and help that I was getting. So we would ride by 10, do our motos, do our technique, sprints, 20 lap motos, whatever, all of it, right? We're working really, really hard. Then it was time for lunch and we'd probably finish riding by like two. so you'd eat right away, shower, eat, and then it was straight to the gym and we'd be at the gym by like four. And it wasn't gym that you would think like, yeah, we're gonna hop on the treadmill and just run that we'd already done that. We ran in the morning. This was more. in in more of stuff that I had never done before. And this is very much in line with kind of the riding technique stuff that I'd never faced before. Um, we would do core exercises. We would do a lot of stretching, uh, not yoga per se yet, but it was just different. When you think of Euro, um, new age type exercises, that's what we were doing. We were a lot of just on our backs, you know, um, lots of core stuff, lots of body weight, Exercises to get stronger and more flexible, and you see that it's super common now, right? Alden Baker's all about it, um, but it was it was new to me back then. Um, but yeah, it was just I got super skinny. I think I'm the same weight now that I was then, um, but it, I probably lost ten or fifteen pounds uh, in that off season training with those guys and eating healthier and making smart decisions and in, in how I went about my training. Um, but we really worked our butt off in that 01 off-season to get ready for 02. Now, I came into 02 pretty hot. I was racing all over. I won a bunch of arena crosses, regional stuff, made a pretty good money, and then my first supercross, um, <laughs> well, I hurt I separated my shoulder the day before I was leaving for Indy to start my supercross campaign. So, it pushed me back a few weeks, but even then, racing hurt. I think I went like 12, 11, 11, nine, eight or something like that. Um, in oh two. So I was good. Like I was way better than I was a year before and things were really looking up. Then I got hurt pretty bad at St. Louis. Um, I won my semi, which we don't have, well, I guess we're back and forth on semis, but it was a pretty big deal. And then I was fourth off the start of the main event and got landed on, dislocated my wrist and I was, my, I was screwed. Right. It's that's like a three month injury. Um, so yeah, I was just, then it was just hanging out with Sebastian and trying to make sure he was being the best he could be. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was out for a long time. Right. I was done surgery on my wrist and pins in it and just a bad, bad deal. Um, but getting ready for his outdoor season, I knew, and he knew, that he had a chance to, you know, contend for a championship. That's what Honda was paying him for. Uh, so I wanted to do everything I could to help him there. I went to the California rounds to cheer him on and go to dinner with him every night and just help any way I could. Unfortunately, Carmichael was just a monster, right? He's just too damn good. And Sebastian did win some, but he couldn't. He couldn't beat Tor. He couldn't beat uh, Couldn't beat Ricky again, right? So we know how that all went. Um, during that time too, unfortunately he and Yannick Carvella split up, which was a bummer I really liked Yannick. Um, but I know that it was a financial strain on, uh, Sebastian and Stephanie with the track and the property and Yannick was really expensive because you, you got to think about Yannick. Okay. He moved over from France to live in the middle of nowhere in Florida with his new wife and son. Okay think about the commitment that takes to relocate your entire life to the middle of nowhere in the woods in Ocala, Florida. So yeah, he's going to have to pay Yannick pretty well to do that, right? There's going to be a significant expense associated with that. And I just don't think that aged very well. You know, Sebastian wasn't winning and there was just, I was in the room a few times when they were having hard conversations financially and it wasn't a a good mood in the air. Luckily I, they were speaking in French. So I think they were speaking openly. I was involved in most of the conversations anyway, so I didn't really care, but it was certainly uncomfortable for me because there was, they weren't good. There weren't good conversations going on. You could tell they were hard and they were probably in the midst of splitting up their partnership. And, um, I don't know what was said but I just know it wasn't good. And I talked to Sebastian later about it and it was just like a lot of expenses and Yanni was very expensive and wanted more money and wanted these things and they couldn't justify it. So anyway, they split ways, which sucked because I was in the middle and I really liked both guys and I didn't want the team to split up that way. Um, But that happened anyway. um, So moving on, we move through that 2002 season. Sebastian has his first child Enzo, which was awesome. He's born in Gainesville, Florida. And, uh, yeah, they, you know, Enzo and, and Sebastian and Steph, they all live in, uh, I believe they moved to Barcelona, but you know, as long as Enzo lives and he's like, what shoot, he'll be 18 this year. That's insane. Um, he's always going to be born in in Gainesville. So that's something, uh, he probably (laughs) has no idea where even Gainesville is, but yeah it was cool to be around that whole thing, watching him, uh, him grow up. So the end of Oh two, Sebastian gets a, an offer to go to Suzuki. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel safe saying, I think it was a million bucks, um, to move to Suzuki. And I, I want to say his Honda deal was 800. Uh, so it was a significant raise to go to Suzuki for the Oh three season. And I remember him weighing through the options and, you know, I, I believe that working with DeCoster, who had, you know, they were European. I think that was a a cool aspect of it. I think he liked that. They could relate to the GP style and, you know, the way they approach just life in general. And I think a big part of it, too, was not having to be teammates with Ricky anymore because that was certainly stressful, right? Your biggest rival is also sharing a truck with you. And Ricky wasn't easy to be teammates with. Ricky is the fiercest competitor I've ever been around. I say that bar none, he was ruthless and it served him well, but it wasn't easy to be, to race against him. It wasn't easy even for me. And I, I was getting like 10th, he was still ruthless with people. So I know he, I know Sebastian wanted to get away from that and be on his own team and I feel like for him, he thought at Suzuki, he would be the biggest priority. Where at Honda, I don't think he felt that was happening, right? Ricky was just this, you know, all-encompassing uh, just mass that everybody circulated around. And I think Sebastian felt like he was getting pushed to the wayside in some aspects of Honda. So it was it was financially a good move. The, the bike in 03 for Suzuki was incredibly good, the 250 two-stroke. So it, it was a positive step all the way around. Uh, he was going to start working with Rick Johnson for that 03 season, and that was pretty cool. RJ was my hero growing up, for, so for me to be around RJ was awesome. Just so cool, like surreal for me to do. And uh, he and uh, Sebastian and RJ just got together incredibly well. They they're very different people. Sebastian's one of the most just understated. Uh, just he doesn't say you would never know he has any talent. He's just not that guy. And RJ was the complete opposite. RJ was larger than life, outspoken, would tell everybody to their face how good he was, and he was better than you at racing. And that's just who he was, right? They were complete opposites, but it worked very well for them. They kind of fed off each other and met in the middle on a lot of stuff. And unfortunately, just Sebastian couldn't stay healthy. And that's that was a theme that rode all the way through the rest of his career. He just could not stay healthy. Knee surgeries and everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And it forced him to retire younger than he should have, in my opinion. Um, I think he should have kept racing, but he made a ton of money. He was really tired of getting hurt. I know in the end, talking to him, he just like, I, I'm i sick of hospitals and sick of injury, and, and I'm just done. So I get it. Um, but I think he left a lot on the table. Uh, the last aspect of all that. So 03, um, <laughs> he... So he gets married really young, right? Before he left Europe with Stephanie, um, they decided to get married before they left. And she's older than him. And I don't think his parents were thrilled about it because he was so young. So they got married in a really small ceremony and and left for America. Well, they never felt like they, they really did it justice. They didn't have this big wedding that they both dreamed of. So at the end of 03, it just felt like the right time. Their parents, Sebastian's parents had kind of come around with the birth of Enzo and they, they realized they were missing out on their only son's life here and now their grandson. So they kind of all made amends and they decided to have this big wedding in the South of France, just outside of Marseille. And being so close with Sebastian, he asked me to be the best man, which was a huge honor for me. Right. And And also the. The thought of going to the south of France in the fall for a wedding, you didn't have to tell me twice. I was in, right? I was booking my flight the same day. So at the same time, as I mentioned, RJ and Sebastian were super close. So he asked me if, if I was cool with sharing the best man with Rick Johnson. Now, (laughs) uh, yeah, just just start there. Yes. I'm totally cool with sharing the best man honors of Sebastian Tortelli's wedding with my childhood hero of Rick Johnson right? That's a crazy question, but it was, Sebastian was just being respectful. You know, he'd asked me a long time prior, but yeah, that's, I mean, I don't know how much cooler of a, a dynamic you can have than that. So fast forward to the end of 03, we fly to France and RJ, myself and his wife, which both of their wives' names are Stephanie, Sebastian's wife and RJ's wife are both named Stephanie. We fly, RJ, myself and Stephanie fly from Paris to Marseille together, And I don't really know RJ, like I know him because he's my hero, but RJ doesn't really know me other than I'm sure he had just seen me running around out there at the races, but he was super nice to me. And and I'd, I had been around him some with Sebastian, but not to where it was a one-on-one talk. So that was a great opportunity for me to just spend a ton of time with RJ and really get to know him, RJ, the person instead of RJ, the supercross champ icon. Right. And we just spent time drinking wine and hanging out and just, you know, BSing about life, you know, in racing and post racing. And he had, he just had so much advice and guidance for me because he had been through it, right? He was the best ever. He was, in my opinion, one of the best riders to ever do it. He got hurt, had to retire younger than he wanted. And then he had been out of it for 10 years, probably at that point. So he had all this post racing advice to be able to share with me and training advice and things to do right and wrong and things he'd wish he had done differently because I was in the middle of it right i was 24 and in not even in the prime of my racing career really yet um so it's just one of those things i'll never forget is just the conversations we had sitting around you know and i'm just absorbing everything he has to tell me and of course we're having a great time too it's a wedding in the south of france like of course you're going to have a great time so i i just remember he stayed remember he stayed at this house on the property of Sebastian's place. Sebastian had this house down there, which was amazing. And there was like this guest house, which RJ stayed in. And I rented a hotel nearby. And you got to remember, this is 03 in France, right? So they don't have, there was no TV. There was no internet. There was no, there wasn't a TV at all. Forget about cable TV. So I was pretty bored when I was there by myself. I was like, walk around and actually was reading a lot back then because remember they didn't have, you know, iPads or Netflix or anything. So I would read a lot. Um, but it was just a crazy time. You, you watch these old movies of France and the South of France. And that's exactly what it was. Like people playing bocce ball on the sidewalk and riding bicycles everywhere. And just a very slow pace of life compared to what I was used to then. and, And definitely now, but What an incredible wedding it was um the amount of money that was spent on this wedding will haunt my dreams forever i i don't know the number i don't want to know the number i remember talking to sebastian and we were intoxicated i'll just say that at his reception and was at this bar it was actually after the reception we moved the party to this bar in town and he was buying drinks for everybody. And every time he got the bill to for more drinks or like another round, I saw the number and it was I was like, no, 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 that's not, don't do that. Like, no, I don't want to drink. Like nobody, nobody needs more drinks. We're done. And he was like, ah, yeah. He's like, he didn't really spend money very often. So he's like, I can spend the money. Like, we have the money. It's fine. It's like, you don't need to. Because I think it was I remember seeing number of like a thousand dollars every time to like order drinks. And it was like a lot of rounds of drinks. So this place where we had the reception was this old castle. I don't want to know how much it costs to be at this reception. I mean, whatever. He made a lot of money. Good for him. I'm sure it was a once in a lifetime experience to do this wedding the right way, but it was a very over the top experience. And I was just very fortunate to be there. Um, but just such an awesome time. I'll never forget that wedding. Um, so when we're working out the, you know, the night before we're at the rehearsal or whatever, you know, Sebastian's basically saying like, Hey, this is a very traditional French wedding. We're at this thousand year old church. Um, you're not going to understand a word. This is all going to be in French and it's very traditional. So it's going to be super long. And I'm like, okay, no problem. I'll have a glass of wine before I'm ready for anything at that point. So he basically says, Hey, okay. Do you guys want to both stand up there? And RJ, and RJ knew better. I think he's like, no, no, I'm good. I'll just, I'll sit with Stephanie. So she's not alone out in the seats you know, JT, you were the first, you were, you've been the best man in this whole deal for a year now. Why don't you go up there? I'm like, sweet. I'm in like, send me up there. So I'm standing up near the altar. I I'm going to guess it was somewhere between 90 minutes and two hours while all of these procedures and traditional things are going on. Everything's in French. There's things happening that I, I couldn't even recognize what was going on and I'm just bored out of my mind, right? I can't understand what's being said. I don't know where Seb- Sebastian wasn't even out there yet. Like it's just all this traditional stuff. I, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you where to start with what was happening. I just remember being forever standing up there. And, uh, but just a really cool experience to be a part of. Um, obviously the ceremony was amazing. It was awesome for Sebastian's family to be there and Stephanie's family to be there. And I get to know, Stephanie's brother really well, and just an an amazing time we had. And I'm rambling a little bit, but something I'll probably never get to do again is be in a wedding in the south of France, and at a young age like that, 24, you don't really have perspective on it, but I do now. And uh, just so lucky to be involved and asked to participate in something like that. So cool story with Sebastian. Obviously, his career, you know, I think he retired in 06, uh, 607. He went back and did GPs for another year on KTM, made really good money, made a ton of money at Suzuki. Um, he does a bunch of training now, uh, with riders in Germany and all over the place. I, I try to keep up with him on Instagram. Hopefully those kids are listening to him because that guy, he knows what he's doing. He was one of the most naturally talented riders I've ever seen, especially on a motocross track, the way he could carry momentum and find traction. Uh, I, it was something I'd hadn't really seen before and keep in mind I'd ridden endless laps with Tim Ferry thousands and thousands of hours of riding with Tim Ferry and Sebastian was significantly more talented than Timmy was just straight out of the box right Timmy worked hard and he was able to get himself better and Timmy was a better supercross rider than Sebastian was but just pure outdoor skill Sebastian was right there maybe even more so than Carmichael just on pure talent Carmichael's Ability to persevere, just his will to win. I've never seen anything like that above. I don't care who you bring to the table. Carmichael had a, had more desire to win and and perseverance than anybody, but raw talent on an outdoor motocross track, Sebastian, I don't know that I could find anybody. Maybe Stuart or Carmichael, I guess you have to put in there, but point being Tortelli deserves to be in that conversation. Um, You know, the biggest thing I'll leave you with on Tortelli is just... He was such a good person. Forget about the riding. Forget about his talent. Forget about any of that. He was just a great human being, and I think that's most important to kind of put a, a just a bow tie on it. He's, he's a good person. He always has been a good person, and I hope that, first and foremost, that's remembered above all of his motocross accolades. World champion, won races. He beat Carmichael straight up in Carmichael's prime. I mean, he beat him past him, go back and watch like red bud from 2001. He was just better than Carmichael period. Right. And there, there aren't many people that can ever claim that. Um, but again, even more important than that, he was a better person than he was a dirt bike racer. So I hope you have enjoyed this weekend's industry seating. I enjoyed telling stories. It's fun for me to, to reminisce and go down memory lane, those memories of going to France and just spending you know, days and days and days at Sebastian Tortelli's compound in Florida, which is probably just an overgrown mess. He ended up selling the property, but I can remember like it's yesterday. I, I really can If If I drove in there, it would be like a day has not passed since I was out there riding and just pulling up and that old house and his shed. And man, it's just, it's so cool to have lived through that. And it's almost a little sad because those days are gone, right? Life, life has gone on and, um, we don't get to get to relive or go back down those things. And at the time I really didn't care. It was like, okay, Sebastian's moving to California tracks, probably going to go away, whatever, like on to the next, right? It was just, you don't really have perspective on as life is changing. You don't think you're ever going to miss those days. And I certainly do. Um, I'm thankful for the memories, but I miss those times. I miss Sebastian's friendship and, and getting to see him all the time and watching his kids grow up. But that's life. So cherish those around you. Um, don't take any of this stuff for granted. We're we're in weird times right now, and, and these times are going to be studied for centuries, in my opinion. Maybe not centuries, but for generations, financially, financially. Um, this virus, every every ramification is going to be studied and remembered for decades, right? We're going to be telling young people about these times for as long as we live, and uh, I I want to soak in and remember every bit of it, the good and the bad, because we're gonna look back and be like, man, you remember that? Remember we couldn't leave our house for months on end, and we had to resort to. Netflix at all times of the day and night. That was like our go-to like all these things are just they're not going to last forever. So I hope all of you stay safe. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you supporting the sponsors of this podcast and above all else, I hope to see you at a race soon. Thanks and see ya.